Hello, and welcome to the Infinite Financial Freedom Podcast, where we empower you with financial literacy and guide you on your journey to financial freedom. I'm Josh Metal, and I'm here today with Stephen Flood, CEO of Goldcore. Stephen and his Goldcore team frequently appear, appear in international media, such as CNBC, Bloomberg, CNN, Wall Street Journal, Associated Press, Routers, and now the Infinite Financial Freedom Podcast. So we're grateful to have him with us. And, um, and, and, and he also often takes uh, a position or part of the Bloomberg and CNBC gold surveys, as well as the router's precious metal polls. So certainly he is an expert in this field. And after his degree uh, in business at the Portobello Business College in Dublin, Ireland, which is where he's, he's joining us from Ireland today as well, Stephen began his career in finance. He held financial and trading posts in New York before joining Goldman Sachs as a sales trade as a sales trader in equity derivatives. Later returning to Ireland from the US, he put his experience in trading, risk and financial markets at Goldman to good use. His entrepreneurial drive led him to eventually join and now become the CEO of Goldcore. Stephen now leads a group of professionals who advise clients on gold and silver purchasing, which little known secret, I have been a gold and silver bug since the Great Recession. And so I'm super interested to welcome Stephen to the show. And uh, with that, how are you today, sir? I'm wonderful. And it's great to be here, Josh. Thank you so much for the very kind introduction there. You're, you're a generous man. I appreciate you very much being with us and, and sharing your perspective. And so it's 11.18 a.m. here in Park City, Utah. It's 6.18 p.m. in Ireland. And so we're on the other side of the, the time zones there. I appreciate you joining us. And um, let's just jump in. Your, your background is super interesting to me, Stephen. So just walk us through a little bit about your journey from from Ireland to New York and back, and just bring us up to speed on your journey, if you would. Yeah, well, I suppose um, since from an early age, uh, I've always had an interest in business and entrepreneurship. Um, like yourself, I had some uh, humble beginnings. Uh, in fact, um, I think you, you started off humbly and then became very successful. Our family actually um, enjoyed quite a lot of wealth at one, st one stage, and then we lost it all through the 70s and 80s. Um, and uh, and then um, my mother, who hadn't actually worked in a kind of a formal job uh, up until her, in her 40s, um, circumstance, circumstances forced her to go back into the workforce. And she became an entrepreneur in her own right and bought um, a small bed and breakfast in Dublin city centre. And uh, I spent many of my formative years watching her operate that business, um, you know, making beds, making breakfasts, talking to wonderful American tourists and uh, learning about the world through the eyes and experiences of our of our guests. And um, and, I, and I always found it really fascinating. And I used to love talking to everybody. And uh, it was a great time. And it was, we, we, we didn't have a whole lot. We had to work hard for every penny we got. And um, we really enjoyed it. So it was a great experience. Um, when I finished college, I um, made a beeline to New York City to uh, find my fortune. And uh, my first experience there was working for a pump and dump operation, which I think was actually later to be found to be have run by uh, the New York Mafia. Um, it's very similar to um, uh, that famous movie, um, The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, but I worked there for two days. Uh, I realized what was going on. 
because they were only ever selling and pitching two different tickers at the top of the room. And, uh, and it was a total scam. Um, so I left there. I became a painter for about a month or two. And I wasn't a very good painter. Um, my <laughs> friend who ran the painting company, he used to tell me to, uh, to be quiet, that he was paying me from the neck down to do the work. So it was just like, it was very funny. Hello, Kyle, if you're, uh, if you're watching. And, um, and it was a great education as well. But then I got a job in Bankers Trust, um, which was an extraordinary organization. And at the heart of kind of financial development in New York at the time, like the first options contracts were actually developed in Bankers Trust. I think Black and Shoals is the options pricing um, uh, algorithm that, that's used um, by the financial industry. And they worked, or one of them worked at Bankers Trust. You know, they got like, a, um, you know, significant awards for, the, for that work. Changed the world of finance, arguably. So um, I worked there. I was really good at financial technology, loved computer systems, loved diving into technical problems. And Bankers was a great place to be. So I learned a huge amount about financial products, the markets, risk. And, and I, they gave me a free reign to develop and work on, on solutions. Um, and I spent, uh, so I cut my teeth, so to speak, there, working in the middle office, back office, and then uh, working uh, on, the de- on the trading desk uh, for equity arbitrage, which was an incredible experience um, where you're basically looking at different sectors of the market and you're trying to uh, make money on the, on the on a spread. You'd short one side of it, you'd go long the other side and you'd make money uh, doing that. So I learned a lot there. And then I found my way to Goldman Sachs. Uh, after Deutsche Bank bought Bankers Trust, and um, I worked at Goldman, which was an incredible uh, opportunity too. They just opened the doors to non-Ivy League type graduates, so they're buying, they're they're taking people from the street for the first time. So I was part of that cohort who came in, and it was incredible because it's kind of a it was a it was an evolving organization at the time, and it had a very kind of traditional approach to everything, very bad technology. And so when we came, when when I came in with other people, we had this kind of more kind of street edge to us. We were able to disrupt things greatly. And because uh, there's such a fantastic culture there, they were very open-minded about that too. And uh, they'd just gone public as well, I think a few months before, so or a year before. And uh, so I spent a few years there working at Goldman and I worked in the, uh, on, on the sales desk of, uh, sales trading desk uh, of equity derivatives uh, in the program trading area. And I met amazing people and just it was an incredible experience. But then I, uh, after about seven years in, in New York, and you work hard, um, you know, I just got married and I was like, you know what, this is not really where I want to spend the rest of my life. I don't want to, you know, be, um, I suppose, exposed to the banking system and the vagrancies of banks. You know, mm-hmm. like some days they're on high and then they're on the low. And I didn't want to set up family and rely upon that that income stream. So I um, myself and my good wife, Paula, um, we headed back to Ireland via uh, around the world. We did a around the world trip for a number of months, had an amazing time as well. And uh, made our way back to Ireland. And after about uh, two years back home, um, I joined my old school friend, Mark, uh, who had set up Goldcore after a few months. And um, he he needed some assistance in various different aspects of uh, the business website and technology. And I just dove right in and I loved it. And uh, for 17 years, we ran uh, the business together. And Mark uh, recently uh, sold his share in the business about two years ago and left me in, in control um and uh we've been expanding um you know very very well since then we have um i think we manage around 300 million dollars now in assets around the world for our clients uh, and we're 20 years old as an organization next october and we're really proud of that because only three percent of companies actually make it to 20 years uh-huh. i didn't know this until recently um so we're very proud of that our team is absolutely incredible they're very very client focused 
Uh, and that's not a cheesy sales line. We are nuts about our clients. We really do everything we can to uh, to deliver for them. And um, about 10 years ago, we started asking every client to give us a rating, which goes up on our website. We don't have any control over it. Like, so they say bad things about us. It goes up there in the lights. And we have just passed the 3,000 review mark. And we're a 4.9 out of 5. Wow. Uh, over 3,000 reviews over 10 years. So I'm. I'll, I'll put my. I'll nail my, nail my colors to the to the mast. We are the best precious metals business in the world. We are the most client focused at what we do, and uh, we always deliver. Uh, and uh, it's been it's a great honor. It really is. We we enjoy every day. We absolutely we love our job. It's a beautiful story. I appreciate you sharing that. And um, yeah, we're gonna at the end definitely get some contact information for you and for Gold Corp. But it, uh, you know the uh, the part of your story that I, I found actually particularly interesting was around <laughs> your family having a. It seemed like in the middle of your 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 mother's life having some sort of financial calamity. And so I wonder if you'd just be kind enough to share what were the major takeaways as you reflect back on that? Like what what have you decided to do personally different? to ensure that that type of a situation didn't happen to you and, and your family? Yeah. Um, well, my family, my children are quite young. Well, they're not young, young. They're 18, 17, and 15 as we speak. Um, and uh, they're great. And they're, but they're still formative, you know. They're they're still looking at me and, and learning. And and, uh, and I learn from them as well. It's, it's the greatest honor I've ever had is to be a dad. Um, mm-hmm. But I think looking back then, um, I think my mother uh, uh, had an incredible resilience, even though, you know, things might be going really bad. There was terrible um, currency crises back then and interest rates would go extraordinarily high over um, week to week, um, you know, with, with various different things. And our interest payments would 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 grow as well. And we didn't have any money and we had to try and make our mortgage payments. And it was so bad. We did. We'd uh, myself and my sister, Georgie, we'd. Uh, we we would uh, be sleeping in the basement of the guest house. We had our room there and everything like that. But when when the weekend came and you had guests calling to the door, we'd give up our beds uh, to give it to guests. So we'd make that just a bit extra bit of money, and yeah. we'd sleep on the kitchen floor of the guest house and on mattresses. And it's uh, and and uh, and then we'd get up, put the mattresses away, and then make breakfast. And we'd come out of the kitchen, you know, looking happy and smiles. The guests wouldn't have a clue. Yeah. Um, but it was uh, it was kind of like behind the scenes. But I think the the lessons I learned is is um, resilience. Um, you know, I I love uh, Nassim Taleb. He's a, a famous writer, and he wrote a book called Anti Fragility, mm-hmm. um, which is like, it's a really important concept. Which basically, as human beings, we become stronger through adversity. And uh, yes, things are bad, and sometimes things go really really awful. Um, but you know, um, you know, time moves on. Things will pass. Uh, these things, this will pass. I always tell my kids this: if you're really depressed. To say that to yourself, you know, this too will pass and things do get better and you have to be have a positive outlook and only with a positive outlook can you see opportunity. If mm. you don't have a positive outlook, you won't see opportunity. Even if it comes right beside you, you will not see it. You're blind to it. So um, my 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 lessons from that time is resilience. Uh, just roll with the punches and, and get up and keep going and enjoy your life because we're so fortunate to have the lives we have today, our health. Uh, our friendships, our education systems. It's never been better uh, for this generation of people, um, even if you look back over time. So I think we're very fortunate. And the things we suffer hail in comparison to previous generations and our parents and our forebears and uh, and what the lives that they led, you know? So I think it's, uh, I think that's that's the way I kind of look at it. 
I love that the lesson that you pulled out of that was an inside game lesson, right? It was this too shall pass. And, and if we're not in a place of, you didn't say gratitude, but what came for me was gra- gratitude and ap- opportunity mindset, then we could literally walk by money laying in the streets. So I, I love that you came away from that from an inside game tactic versus a just a monetary external tactic. That was great. That surprised me, Stephen. I thought you were going to say something totally different. And I love what you said there. <laughs> so, you know, money, money, what is money? You know, they say uh, the money is the root of all evil. People have very interesting ideas of what money is and what it means. So perhaps you could give us an explanation uh, and maybe a little bit of history about uh, fiat money systems and and how you think about money. Yeah, well, money. Um, the only, there's only one thing called money, and that's gold. Um, and silver has been money at times, but gold primarily has been money throughout history. Uh, everything else is currency, and currency is a derivative of money. Um, typically, currencies are issued and they're backed by money, gold, and that was pretty much the case throughout most of most history, through a, through a lot of different uh, cultures over time. Um, and arguably the British Empire, uh, it's it's the, the stability it brought to developing economies around the world in the 1800s and the Industrial Revolution was in part uh, based on the strength of its, its, its currency, which was in large part backed by gold, and and the the rate of gold to the pound, I mean, I think it fluctuated around forty percent um, when it was first put in place um, uh, back in the sixteen hundreds, uh, and then it was watered down at different times. And they left the gold standard, and then they had crises, and then they went back on the gold standard. <laughs> but essentially, um, the, what fiat money is today is currency backed by the tax raising power of our governments and it's not backed by anything it's backed by a promise and that can be okay sometimes to have uh, a currency with a government that's stable that is very fiscally responsible but i would argue and it's just my opinion and probably that of most reasonable people that our governments have lost uh, have lost their way and they have decided to abuse their authority by printing money and by issuing too much credit and also controlling uh, interest rates um, for political reasons. So back in the uh, in the 1990s, actually, when I landed in America, about a year after that, they uh, they repealed an act called Glass-Steagall. I don't know if you've ever come across Glass-Steagall, but this was an incredible piece of legislation that went to the heart of the of the original stock market crash in the 1920s. And, and, and there was boom and bust cycles around those times as well. And what they re- what they realized uh, back then was the financial system is incentivized to lend money. But if they're also selling product, they're going to lend money to get the guy, the, the client to buy, buy more products. So they're going to make on the lend and they're going to make on the product sale. And this is a vicious circle and it's not productive and it's not a good use of our capital assets. So the problem we have today is that since uh, 71, Nixon pulled us off the gold standard. And, and now the dollar is not backed by anything. And as such, no currencies around the world are backed by, by gold. Um, uh, they're just backed by promises. And it means that um, you can have uh, a lot of money printing, which leads to inflation. Always. I don't care who you are. It will always lead to inflation. 
And that's what we're seeing today. It's not Mr. Putin's fault. It's not necessarily the war in Ukraine. This is a monetary experiment and it's and it's global. And it's I mean, it's been on its way since the last global financial crisis, I think, is when they really accelerated money printing. I think it's about $20 trillion they've generated out of nothing. Um, so when they do that, and this is really important to remember, uh, you know, you're a businessman, I'm a businessman, we pay our taxes. And when we put our after-tax income into our savings accounts to pay for our kids' education or whatever it is, um, we paid our dues, we paid our taxes. That's our money, that we our buying power that we should keep. But when we print money, they actually reduce that again. And I'd argue that's called taxation. And it's taxation without representation, which is exactly what happened in Boston, the Tea Party. It's what that was, you know, when the King of England decided to tax the American colonies um, without representation. So I hope what happened then happens again. And these people get thrown out on the street um, because what they're doing is they're stealing. They're actually taking value from people who've earned it rightfully and uh, using it for their own purposes, political purposes. Yeah, uh, I love that entire history you just put forth. It reminds me, I was just I was just Googling one of my famous uh, favorite quotes from Milton Friedman. And Milton says, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon in the sense that it is, meaning inflation is, and can be produced only by a more rapid increase in the quantity of money than in output. And I know that's economists speak. But if we boil that down and just think about it super simply, let's think about all of the stimulus, the $20 trillion in stimulus or whatever happened around COVID, whatever that dollar amount was. So that was a rapid increase in the quantity of money. And at the same time, was output going up or creation of product going up? No, it was going down, right? Because we had the supply chain disruptions and, and the lockdowns and everything. So you had a rapid increase in, in the supply of money. You had a decrease in the amount of output or production. And you got this crazy inflation that's now going all around the world. And people, like a really easy way for people to think about this is, look what happened to the values of homes, right? We made super cheap 2.5% mortgages. We helicoptered money to businesses and people all over the country in the United States. And then we took away all the supply chains that builders needed to build homes. It's literally the definition of inflation. And for, for the U.S. government and the Fed to say, you know, this is really surprising. We thought this was going to be transitory. We're surprised how little we know about inflation. Please. I mean, come on. You, you had to know that was going to happen. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I think also one part that's never, never discussed is that globalization, which means they basically opened up the East, i.e. China, India, Bangladesh, and suddenly all of these items and products and stuff like that were then exported to the West, these kind of uh, these market economies. Um, and they we imported deflation. Um, so we were we were printing money and they're like, no, well, we're, we're, we're trying to ease here, but we can't get the inflation rate up. You know, we're building up debts, but the inflation rate's not gone up to burn off the debts. And, and they kept doing more and more of it. And really what they were doing is they're importing deflation as well, which is a counterweight to the inflation, the monetary inflation. And now China, guess what? China is not exporting deflation anymore. They have their own large market economy. Uh, they're not as cheap as they used to be. And then the prices aren't falling as much as they did. And now we're left with this enormous amount of debt. And you can measure debt as a relative number to GDP. And back at the original global financial crisis, back in you know, 2007, 8, 9, um, 
uh, debt to GDP globally was 240%. It's now 340% and climbing. So on a relative basis, we are up to our oxters, our necks in debt. And with interest rates going up, that puts extraordinary pressures. So every like an interest rate move today is like maybe two or three equivalent moves 10, 20 years ago. Right. It's markedly more, more impactful. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's interesting now, I think, is that even though we have inflation burning hot, uh, even historically, with this amount of debt and this amount of money that's been printed, I don't know what this looks like going forward. I mean, this this inflation could be sticky, a lot stickier than people think. It could even spike higher before it comes lower. I don't know. Um, it, it's not necessarily just an energy function. Energy is a big part of it. But I think the monetary system is a big part of it. Um, and I think most people today on the street have never actually experienced inflation. They don't have any institutional memory of right. the 70s when it got really, really ugly, where people were forced to do three-day weeks, the rubbish was piling up on the streets in Europe. People couldn't even get buried in places like uh, the UK. They had bodies like, you know, just not, you know, normal like funeral services were weren't able to be processed. Um, so it can get very strange, very odd, and it can create very unusual kind of um, vectors in our economy that we need to watch out for. And I don't think people today really have a clue. So I'm watching for next 2023. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens um, with the consumer. Watch the consumer. Very interesting. The other thing you mentioned was, um, you know, fiat currencies can can be okay if if governments have constraints on spending. Or I believe you said something like that. And 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 I just wanted to share really quickly. Those of you listening on a podcast won't be able to listen, but those of you watching on YouTube or some other video format, you'll be able to see my screen here. And this is the U.S. debt cl- clock. I love this. <laughs> it, I mean, if you want something to scare the shit out of you. This should do the trick. I mean, I don't know anything scarier than this. When you start to break this down and and the debt clock shows we owe as a country over thirty one trillion dollars, uh, of course, there's 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 the uh, there's all these additional um, uh, debts that aren't even included in that, like, you know, Medicare. Or the, so they've got these oh, unfunded. Yep, exactly. But when you start to look at this, you know, debt per taxpayer, it starts to get really, really scary. And then you've got, you know, you mentioned debt to GDP. Uh, I think you were mentioning that um, internationally, right? Globally. Yeah. But if you look at debt to GDP in the US, you know, in the 60s was a 50% ratio. In the 80s, we were down to 30. We're up to over 120%. And so it's just, it's just Frightening, and the interest on the debt. Goodness gracious! It's a, oh, yeah. it's, it's a. This is a really fun place to spend some time. I nerd out on that all the time. I have it on my phone. I love it. There's a place that if you scroll down, I don't know. I, I was going to wing it here, but you scroll down. The average wage back in 2000 versus 22, and the average house and the average car. Oh, is that, is that, that section actually, there on that? It should be down in the lower half of that, honest. on the right side, if I recall. Oh, okay. Average wage between two different years. Basically, the average U.S. wage has uh, only m- increased a small amount. I think it's like thirty, whatever, thirty thousand, thirty-two thousand to like thirty-eight thousand or something. Very small. But the average house has gone up twofold, or two hundred, uh, uh, yeah, two hundred percent. And the average car has gone up about I don't know two hundred percent as well. 
Um, so the real impact on people's lives of affordability, like having a house, having a car, has they've, they've been impoverished. They have not participated in, in terms of wages, real wages. What they have done is taken on a lot of debt, more debt than they ever had had before. And so interest rates, again, if they're going up, you know, debt looks great if it's really cheap, but not when it's going up. Um, and that impacts consumer. We haven't seen that second shoe drop yet. What's going to happen with the consumer? When will they tighten their belts? And if they do en masse, what does that look like? Yeah, here's where it is. Right here, Stephen, you're right. It says uh, median income now, 36000 median income in 2000, 32000 and the median uh-huh. home price, 168000 in 2000 median home price today, 443000 And that just goes to speak about your previous point around as interest fluctuates now, since there's so much more debt, it has a massive, massively um, increased ramification because the, the interest rate fluctuation is on three or four times as much debt. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, okay. It's, it's, a, it's the middle classes and the lower classes who are getting nailed. And if you look at the share of wealth, uh, you know, um, who is it? Um, Ray Dalio. He's got some great charts where he shows the percentage of wealth. You've probably seen this. The last time the wealth share of the top 10% or top 1%, whatever it is, equaled the bottom 50%. The last time that they equaled was back in the 1930s. Uh, and that level of, of um, unfairness, whatever you want to call it, inequality, um, GD coefficient or something like that. It's, it's it's never been as bad since the 1930s. And what happened in the 1930s? Well, people got angry and they voted in crazy people to do crazy things. And um, yeah, we lost control. So yeah, it's it's uh, they get this better get it but get. Well, I don't think they can actually bring it under control. Um, I think that they've created this monster. They can't stop inflation if they can't raise rates. They can't raise rates because they owe too much money, and a big portion of tax then has to go to paying the debt. So they're in a the, all the central banks are in a really really bad place right now. They're they're trapped. Um, so I don't know what the next sta- next stage is, but it's it's not not looking too good. Yeah, there's I mean there's a lot of writings around uh, the end game of that that debt cycle, and essentially once you get into that spiral, uh, it, it's hard to get out, and and you the only way to really get out is some sort of a massive reset. So. I think that's going to bring us to uh, a little more discussion around gold here in a minute. But I wanted to ask you before we go to that, tell us a little bit more about how you think about inflation, um, how it impacts your investment decisions. I'd also love to hear a little bit from you, from your perspective, because, you know, in in Europe, they don't have these 30-year fixed mortgages uh, no. And so give us just your perspective on inflation and, and how you think it, it it impacts both investments and how you take out debt. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, infl- um, if you have debt, inflation is your friend because it burns away the debt, basically. And But you have to look at the real rate, too. If you've got a high inflation and you're not beating that number, you're still growing your debt unless you can pay it back some other way. So um, it's it's uh, I think inflation at ten percent for people who have existing mortgages at lower rates it's not a bad thing as long as you're able to pay your bills mm-hmm. um, let that do its do do its work. There's a great I don't know if you ever come across this the rule of seventy two. Oh yeah, um, I love this. So an inflation rate of ten percent into seventy two seven years you had a hundred thousand dollars and you have an inflation rate of ten percent 
And the rule 72 says that in seven years, your buying power gets halved. Okay, so that's the effect of a 10% inflation rate. Um, it's, it's a killer to your savings. So if you've got cash sitting in the, under your mattress or sitting in a bank and it's earning zip, um, and uh, an inflation rate of 10% means you're, at, you're literally just handing the central bankers 10% of your money. Um, and it, and you pay tax on that. So you're getting taxed again. It's horrendous. So I'm, I'm, I don't think you should be in cash, but there is an argument to be in cash in one scenario. And that is if you think that there's going to be some sort of event, there's going to be some sort of market repricing that stocks and price and stocks and assets have been very much interest rate sensitive and interest rate supported. And if interest rates go up, those assets probably or may not have the same type of valuation uh, that they had before. Yeah. If you own gold and the guy and everyone else on your street doesn't own any gold, and there's a 50% markdown some week, you some you open up you open up your newspaper, you open up CNN, whatever it is, and they say, Hey, um, there's a bank holiday in force this Monday. The banks aren't opening because of a crisis, whatever it is. Um, there's blood on the street, stock markets gapped down. Um, there, you know, the, the 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 guys, the treasury is out on you know at the plinth, and they're trying to calm people down. We've got this under control, and, and the stock markets are selling off. If you have cash, then you can pick up great bargains. Those who don't have gold in their portfolio, I would surmise, will panic because they look at the maybe the first fifty percent down, and then they're looking at going from fifty percent down to zero. They're looking at getting washed out completely. But the person who has gold is seeing that go up in value because it responds to uh, you know, to crises. Um, and if that's going up, it's taking the sting out of the correction. This is the purpose of gold. It's not to make you money. It is to calm you down. It's like a stiff drink. It takes the edge off. It allows you to see things clearly and you can then take advantage and you can pick up assets at bargain basements, probably never to be seen again prices, because you have taken stock, you've got that insurance built into your diversified portfolio. So you don't own gold to make money, you own gold to calm you down, to diversify, and that's what you want. That's its purpose in life. And you'll never hear any other dealer or anyone anyone in the markets tell you that. That's from Goldcore, that's 20 years of experience dealing with the, the, the our customers. We learn that from our customers. That's its purpose. And so tell us, explain to us, connect the dots, really, if you would. What, how would you typically expect gold or other hard assets to um, to perform during times of elevated inflation? And how has gold performed over the last, let's call it, 24 months we've been seeing inflation rise? Well, this... Um... This year, it's, it's it's been fairly fairly benign. Um, uh, I think it's like five percent year to date um, in twenty twenty two, which is not a whole lot. It hasn't really you know gone on fire. Uh, it's an interesting thing. Um, gold tends to move medium term with consumer stress, and the consumers haven't reacted as mu- as badly as people thought they might. They're only seeing interest rates moving up now for the first time. We haven't had rising rates for a long time. I think it's like, I don't know what the number is, but it's you know, going back 10 something years plus. So it, there's a bit of newness to this and they haven't seen inflation since their grandparents, you know, or, you know, or, or their elderly parents back in the, you know, the seventies. So 
It's a, it's an interesting time. I think uh, we're we're really busy. We have a lot of people buying precious metals uh, in in the UK, in Ireland, in the United States as well. We have two offices over there, and uh, we, we are we are busy out. And I think people are kind to look at this and go, it's the price is really really cheap, and they expect gold to go an awful lot higher. That being said, I don't you know it could go lower. There's no guarantees, and I don't want people to buy on that basis. It's going to go up. The position for it is to have it as part of a diversified portfolio. So I think you're going to see gold react uh, in, uh, on an inflation basis once the inflation pain hits the street. That's when people start to pull back on their expenditure and they suddenly realize inflation got up 10%. My wages aren't moving at all. My job security just took a hit because, you know, they're not hiring anymore. And so the tech workers are getting laid off. Maybe the industrial workers are going to get laid off. Next, service workers might get laid off. I don't know. Um, and maybe the problem with employment just suddenly flips around the other way. So I think the next uh, the next chapter in this is just beginning. And I would expect gold uh, to react very positively to that uh, and silver as well. So um, I think they're going to move up higher. Um, again, no guarantees. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand. Um, I, I I think you're right. My My feeling is that as we move forward, there's a very high likeliness that the U.S. is headed towards a recession. And I think um, I think the Fed will pivot. And and part of the reason why gold hasn't moved markedly higher is just the, the resilience and strength of the dollar. But as the U.S. enters a recession, as the Fed pivots and potentially reverses course, I think that'll be a, a really good time for gold. Um, and I think I have to say that because I own a lot of gold. So, you know, if I didn't think that, I'd be, <laughs> I would be doubting myself there. <sighs> I have a question for you, Josh. I have yeah. a question for you. You're, you're a worldly man. Um, what would you think the average annualized return on gold since the turn of the century, since 2000 to now, 22 years? Wow. I'm going to totally screw this up, but I would go somewhere in line with, uh, with inflation. So I bet I'm going to be low here, but maybe four or five percent. It's about 10 percent. 10 percent. Annualized. Now, if you look at all currencies in the world, they're all around nine to 12 percent annualized since the year to, uh, 2000. That's unbelievable. It's one of the best performing assets out there. Um, uh, and it doesn't have anywhere near the volatility you know, financial advisor types like to you know tarnish it with. Um, and it's it's ask, it, it is actually ridiculous because it's a piece of metal. It does nothing. It doesn't make stuff. It just sits there and gathers dust. Uh, it shouldn't be anywhere near as valued valued as it is. If we were actually honest and we worked hard and we didn't you know misallocate re- precious resources like our capital and our human labor. But because we're human beings and we don't do things correctly and we're, we can be corrupted, um, then we have something like gold. And what gold is, and this is really important to understand, it allows you as an investor to step back from the financial system to say, you know what, Mr. Government, I'm going to give you your dollars and I'm going to take my gold and I'm going to sit outside the system completely. And I'm going to sit this one out until you get control of things properly again. And in that sense, it gives you financial sovereignty. It gives you the option to step away from the system and vote with your money and vote out. And so our clients, we, you know, they hold gold. We have 11 vaults around the world. They hold bars, kilo bars, and bigger and smaller, on the shelf in Zurich, 
outside the bank system completely. So they are sitting with it, sitting it out, waiting to see what happens. And, uh, and that's the way it gives them pure sovereignty. So 10% annualized return, that's no bad thing. Um, and it just shows the way the way the currencies have been abused. Those currencies have gone down 10% a year right. relative to gold. It's not gold's going up, they're going down. That's that's exactly the way to think of it. I completely agree with you. Well, you know, there, there's no shortage of uh, potential international crisis going on between China shutdowns, uh, the rioting they had a few weeks ago or last week, um, what's going on with Russia. You know, we just had the, the the FTX cryptocurrency meltdown that set a whole cascading effect of uh, of challenges through cryptocurrency. So maybe you could just give us your take around all those geopolitical risks and then also that kind of financial uh, risk that one has when they put their money in trust of something like a Bitcoin. And tell us how you think gold relates to that. It's a big question. Um, so geopolitically around the world, um, there's a number of different things happening. Obviously, there's the whole monetary side of things. You know, so all these all these currencies have um, they've competitively debased their currencies because the dollar got debased. They had to debase as well. Otherwise, they would, the dollar would have been far too powerful, more powerful, cheaper. Ever all the goods would have flooded out into internationally, and they would have lost competitiveness. So there's a competitive currency devaluation going on. Has done for a long time. All dollar based, all dollar originated, Fed originated, um, which is owned by the banks in the states. Um, so. That that being the case, uh, you have uh, a number of things happening. I think probably the big stories, if I was to identify a number of ones, number of them, is the weaponization of the monetary system, and we saw that with Iran. We saw that with uh, with Bank Paribas a few years ago. They got knocked out of the dollar window because by the New York uh, New York uh, AG, uh, and uh, that was a weaponization of the dollar for arguably political purposes. They did it with Iran once. And then they did it with Russia. And when they weaponized the dollar and they took away their central bank reserves and they banned them from the, the swift clearing mechanism, uh, and I mean, Russian tourists were on holidays on the beach in various parts of the world. Suddenly their, their, their visa cards didn't work. They couldn't pay their hotel bills. They couldn't get their families back home wow. because of something that they weren't directly involved in. Now, whether, wherever you are on the, on the conflict, um, the weaponization of the of the reserve currency of the world for political reasons, and it is, you have to say it, um, changes the changes the chessboard completely. For sure. Now, places like Venezuela, they can't get their gold back. Um, you know, Brazil, India, China. The incentive is for them to uh, reduce uh, reliability, uh, their 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 reliance on the dollar as a safe currency, acceptable always and to create their own currency systems so i fully expect china as its next step forward is going to uh, launch its own digital central bank digital currency which will be used and made available to foreign entities to uh, uh, enter the debt markets they will be able to borrow in chinese renminbi i think that chinese renminbi will be uh, heavily backed by gold not fully backed but heavily backed I think the Chinese are, are accumulating massive amounts of gold right now in order to make this a reality. And they're going to go from a kind of, you know, a workshop of the world to a leading market economy of the world. And that's their plan uh, is to is to be the next reserve currency of the world. 
uh, and to take over the mantle that the United States has had uh, since the 1920s, arguably. Um, so it's it's changing. It's all changing. And um, uh, we'll see where it goes. But ultimately, the United States is heavily indebted. Um, they're, they, they haven't dealt with this as well as they should. They're using the old um, um, box of tools. Uh, and I think the, the weaponization of dollar has changed everything. Really well. I'm oh, sorry, FTX. You asked me about FTX and Bitcoin. So um, uh, my feeling is uh, Elon Musk, uh, FTX, uh, the NASDAQ, um, um, all these companies are all benefactors of an ultra low interest rate environment. Uh, it's an aber- It's a, an anomaly over the last 30 years uh, in some ways. This is not a normal market environment. It's basically hyper-managed by the authorities who are owned by the banks. Remember, these people who go and serve in the Fed and uh, in the Treasury, they leave those jobs, they go straight back into the banks, and they earn huge amounts of money in fees. They are, they are fully paid servants of the financial system. And their job is to make it as easy as possible for financialization and debt accumulation and uh, and the like. I don't think someone like Elon Musk and all of these things would have happened uh, if it wasn't for ultra low interest rate environments. Um, and I think Bitcoin is a massive benefactor of that. Now, there is an element of Bitcoin, which is a libertarian dream, which is currency owned by the people for the people and you know taking control back. But that is an anxiety that gold also uh, um, deals with as well and, and offers something for. Um, and I think uh, there are people who have been kind of brought into it because it's so easy to use and it's cool and it's digital and it's a digital age. And so they like the idea of doing it, but it's actually very expensive. It's, it's not very efficient. It's very old technology uh, and it doesn't really mimic gold in any real way. And there's one incredibly interesting aspect to Bitcoin and why it will never, ever, ever be uh, um, any kind of monetary power in its own right. And that is because it can't be um, it can't be flexed. And here's what's interesting. People don't really understand this about money. But if I go, if you let's say you have a property and you go to your local bank and you say, I want to borrow money. They say, give me collateral. You say, there's my house. Mm-hmm. They say, that asset's worth a million dollars. Great. I'll give you a million dollars in cash. So what they've done is they've just reanimated, for want of a better word, the value inside that house and generated cash. Now, they take the house, they give you cash, and you have now given them a illiquid asset and given being given liquid asset, which you then can use for something else. Mm. Now, you see a million in your pocket of dollars. You also have, you think you own that house, but you don't because the bank does. And you go off and you and you use that money. And that allows you to take a, a kind of a capital asset and animate it in the economy. Money has to be flexible. That money is generated by the bank. It's created at that bank lending level. When you pay it back, that money gets destroyed. Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies don't do this, not by design today, maybe in the future. Central bank digital currencies might do this. I don't know. But um, that's why Bitcoin has failed. It will never be, It will, in my view, it will never be a proper monetary power because it doesn't have that flex. It can't be collateral. It can't be used in a collateralized debt um, arrangement. Uh, and that's one of the key things. There's a fantastic article on this. And I, you should write this down, whoever's listening is. Uh, one of my competitors, uh, um, uh, Paul Tustain, he's a, he's a UK chap, Paul Tustain, uh, and he's a fantastic uh, mind. And he wrote an article about Bitcoin and money. Search it uh, up online and read it. It's very accessible, very well written, and it explains this concept uh, very, very clearly, far better than I can. How do I spell his last name? Uh, Tustain, T-U-S-T-A-I-N. 
Tustain. Um, I know you won't mind me mentioning it, but he, it, he has that in the public realm. I'll uh, I'll Google it and put it in the show notes. Yeah, you love it. It's great. Stephen, this has been fascinating. Um, I know it's a good interview when I feel like, you know, we could go another hour, but we're, we're running out of time. And so let me just uh, allow you, if you would please, or invite you, if you would please, just tell us a little bit more about what Goldcore does and then where they can find information and, 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 and get to Goldcore. Super. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, essentially, uh, our website is goldcore.com. Um, and when you go in there, there's phone numbers, you can call up. And, and what a lot of clients will do is they'll do a, uh, a strategy session where they'll basically, we'll have, a, we'll have a questions and answers with them. We'll figure out what their needs are um, and we'll figure out what type of product is best for those to suit those needs. And um, we don't do pump and dump, up, uh, pump and dump kind of um, loss leader type of uh, product offerings. We don't sell numismatic coins or anything like that. So essentially we try to get the best best priced product for the client that meets their needs. So do a strategy session. You can go on to goldcore.com, open up an account in three minutes if you wish, or call or email us and uh, we'll go through that. What we did though recently, and I think you'll like this, uh, Josh, is um, we we launched a second website called goldintheusa.com, goldintheusa.com in honor of the boss, uh, Bruce Springsteen, you know, born in the <laughs> I love it. goldintheusa.com. And in there, there's a guide and it has all of the top things you need to know if you want to get into the gold market because most people haven't a clue so you download that guide there's some really good tips in there very very straightforward you don't have to use us there's lots of good dealers out there um but we have that guide up there for our us customers you can download that and uh and we'll send you an email as well uh if you wish and uh and then you can engage with us but it's a fantastic resource um but we we store basically we don't do any kind of uh derivatives Everything we sell is physical bullion on the shelf, high, high quality. You can open an account in three to five minutes. You can then uh, buy a gold bar in Switzerland if you want, um, or London or Dublin or, or in Utah. We do an awful lot of storage in Utah and, uh, and, um, and we deliver as well. So um, we've been around for a long, long time. So you're in safe hands. Well, it's a great way to get some fiat currency into a hard asset and also um also have it held outside of the United States. So it's a it's a double security blanket in that regard. I just went on to the, the website, um, uh, Gold in the USA. I see there's a five-point checklist there. So I will download that. I'm going to read through it. I'm going to put it as a link on our show notes. And Stephen, thank you so much, my friend. It's been a, a, you're a wealth of knowledge. And I appreciate everything you shared so generously with us here today. Yeah, thank you so much. It was uh, it, time flew by. You're 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 easy to talk to. We should definitely uh, if you come to Ireland, you know we'll we'll meet up. We'll have a pint of Guinness somewhere, and uh, and we'll chat. I would love that very much. I'm going to hold you up for that. <laughs> <laughs>